Overlake family, Pastor Mike here. I wanted to let you know a couple of things today. First, I have the privilege of speaking at one of our daughter churches today. It's a church called Arbor, and I know it will be great. God's doing great things through that church plan. But I miss you when I'm gone, so much so that I made this Bitmoji just for you. I wanted you to know that I'm not just ripsticking around, although it is surfing for the landlocked, invented by the Lord himself, and we'll all be doing it in heaven. Next, in the past few days at Overlake, we've had the incredible honor of hosting the Refresh Conference, led by Pastor Michelle and Andrew Schneidler, providing care and support for foster and adoptive families, of which mine is one. It's so exciting. God brought over 2,000 people to this conference. It was powerful to witness the love and the practical help and the encouragement offered through this ministry of Overlake. Finally, I am excited to introduce today's speaker to you as we continue in the I Am series. He has dusted off his winter coat and flown up from the foreign lands of Tucson, Arizona. You might know him as the smartest man you've ever met, or Dr. G, but I know him as a dear, dear friend and mentor. So it's really important to me that you grace him with the warmest Overlake welcome possible. Would you please welcome Pastor Gary Gonzalez. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. I should have told Mike, I, I don't have a winter coat anymore. <laughs> In fact, I've heard about your lovely weather up here lately. We brought some sunshine with us. Are you thankful? You're welcome. It is great to be with you. I I'll tell you, uh, Overlake's a special place, and I I've really come to appreciate streaming services because I get to watch online and see the incredible worship that we have here and just... It, you know, it's so good. You can be miles and miles away and yet feel right at home. And that's exactly how we feel. Uh, we love it in Arizona. It's been a great experience for us. But as we've checked out churches, and there are really wonderful churches, we've had a great time getting to know pastors and leaders, but there's no place like home. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. No place like home. Well, and then the other day I got to spend time here at the church with uh, the staff, and that was very special to get to catch up with everybody. And Pastor Mike and I got to grab a cup of coffee. And you're so blessed. You know this. But Pastor Mike is an incredible leader. And uh, Overlake reflects that value that he brings to the, to the table, just that openness, that love of Jesus, and uh, an opportunity to, uh, to walk into some of the challenging places I love the statement of Overlake that, that it's, a, it's a safe place to live dangerously, and I think that's great. Well, this morning I get the privilege of speaking from the Gospel of John, and, and I have to tell you, as I look back over many years of ministry, many decades now, that uh, I love this Gospel. In fact, uh, as a young pastor, I, I remember preaching 72 messages through the Gospel of John. Wouldn't you just love that? 72, right. Now today we do maybe four to six so it's really fun to be able to jump in on a series like this because this is a life-changing book. Of all the passages of the Bible that you can go to, if there's a starting point, I still feel it's, it's the Gospel of John because the best known, the best loved, the most often memorized verses are, are right here in this life-changing book. And the writer of the Gospel, I want you to think about him for just a moment. John was a fisherman. John was a guy that never thought he would write a gospel, believe me. He's a guy that, that just, uh, he loved what he did. He was part of a business that it was apparently a successful business. But, but the reality is, though a fisherman by trade, he became a follower and a close friend of Jesus. 
In fact, his life to me is a great reminder as I love working with people in the business community. His is a great example of how God takes our career and our calling and has a way of, of meshing them together. But I can tell you, most people don't see this immediately. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a business person, whether you're a techie, whatever you're calling in life, the reality is God wants to take who you are the platform he's given you, your career or the way in which you make your way through life, that, that platform that he's given you, and he wants to use you to do remarkable things. And if you don't think that's true, then you would be wrong. God wants to use you. He never wastes any move on you. There's nothing that happens to you that he doesn't want to use through you. And I say this, and it's really fun for me to reflect on ministry, having, again, been at this for so many decades, and now be in a different season of life, and to be able to think through what I've so often spoken on, but now with a different experience of actually being able to reflect a little bit more deeply about how God wants to work in our lives. Amen. As I was thinking about this, I have a great friend. His name is Chuck. And Chuck and I were together in Minnesota, and I won't go into the whole story, but Chuck is an amazing guy. He, he is one of the original rock and roll DJs, starting way back when, when rock and roll was just beginning, in that career for like 55 years, inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Chuck was well into his career, very successful. And then he, he, he met Jesus at the beginning of his career, but, but really it wasn't until well into his career that, that he told me, as our friendship developed, that he fully committed his life to Jesus. Amen. I've known a lot of people like that. People that have walked with Jesus, but they've never really fully committed. Amen. And maybe some of you are in that place this morning. Well, Chuck gave his life to Jesus. He said it was the best decision he ever made. And for years, I got to witness firsthand how God used his celebrity platform to touch thousands of lives for the kingdom. Now, you may or may not touch thousands of lives. Maybe, maybe God doesn't have that particular plan for you. But I guarantee you, according to Scripture, you can be salt and light wherever Jesus placed you. One of the things I love here at Overlake is we, we do this course called SHAPE. You've no doubt heard about it if you've been here any length of time. And, it, and it's just an acrostic, and, and it, it goes like this. SHAPE, each letter represents something. S, spiritual gifts. God has given you unique spiritual capacities. Heart, the things you care about. What is it that moves you deeply? Abilities, your natural talents. Personality, I love this, the things that make you, you. Your personality and experiences, lessons that you've gained over a lifetime. See, in the same way Jesus works in everyone's life, he worked in John's life. He took John, who was a fisherman, a successful fisherman, and he said, guess what, John? Now you're going to be a fisher of men. And if you think about that transition, it's not that great, Right? Fishermen know what bait to use to find the fish. They know when to change the lure. They know what environments look like. I'm not much of a fisherman, but my friends who are tell me this is true. And when I watch the videos, I believe them. They know where to go. And so John, uh, Jesus just took this experience, and he used it effectively to transform this person's life. But like my friend Chuck, it doesn't happen overnight, typically. 
I mean, Jesus can come in and bring a life change, but it takes time for him to build into our lives. And so it's not surprising that when Jesus is walking with John and you get eight chapters into, the, into some of the books, the book like Luke, ninth chapter actually, where, where Jesus is on his way. This is toward the end. The disciples have been with him now three years. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, that final Passover. And then uh, John is there with him together with his brother James, and they become angry because Jesus isn't welcome into the village. They know he's going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans were, uh, in a way, exiled from the Jewish community that surrounded them. And so they didn't welcome Jesus. And in rage, James and John, Luke chapter 9, they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And then it says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, I call this a spiritual speed bump. When you're reading through the Bible, you know, you're cruising right along, and then you hit this spiritual speed bump. It's something that, that causes you to stop for a moment and reflect a little bit more deeply. Look at this verse again, these two verses. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought maybe you could do the work of the Lord better than the Lord? Reminds me of the story of the elephant and mosquito. You know, they're walking along. The mosquito's on the elephant's back. They come to a bridge. They cross the bridge, and it rumbles. And the mosquito flexes his muscles and says, didn't we really shake that bridge? I think some of us are like that at times. But what I also want you to see is three years with Jesus, and they still want to call down fire from heaven to destroy their perceived enemies. You see, John's, Jesus' work in John's life should encourage us because over time, this man who was a son of thunder became known as the beloved disciple, the apostle of love. On the heels of his conversion, Paul had a similar experience. And Paul was able to write in, in the 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that because of Jesus and because of God's power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And I've seen this over the years. Some of you know for many years I worked with a ministry called Promise Keepers, a ministry to men, to millions of men, really. And I saw this again and again, that, that somehow strength can divide, but weakness has a way of uniting when it's a weakness coupled with a relationship with Jesus. Because at the end of that weakness, we understand that God doesn't paper over our shortcomings. He doesn't make excuses for our failures, but because of our dependence on him, we can now acknowledge our humanity Amen. with humility. Amen. That's the key, with humility. So strength is made perfect in weakness when it's coupled with humility. Amen. And so as we look at uh, this, this great I am in the scripture, uh, Pastor Mike mentioned last week, and it's, it bears repeating in Exodus 3, remember the story of Moses Moses is just being called by God to go to a very difficult place, a place that he escaped years earlier, to go back into Egypt. And now he's wondering, Lord, these people aren't going to even know who I am. And he says, uh, when I go to them, suppose the Israelites ask me, uh, you know, who is it that sent you? And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, this incredible phrase, tell them I am who I am. Amen. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. Now, that doesn't typically mean much to us in this culture, but the, the fact of the matter is, in that day when this, these words were spoken, that phrase, I am, literally means, whatever you need, I will supply. 
It's like a blank check. You ever write a blank check? You ever sign your name on that signature line before you fill in the amount? A little scary. But that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. In these great I am passages, if I'm hungry, Jesus is the bread. You heard about that last week. If you're lost, Jesus is the good shepherd. If you need protection, Jesus stands guard at the gate. Amen. You see, this is why Christians can live confident lives, joy-filled lives. It's fun not to exactly have the pastor role in the same way I've had it in the past, because now when I meet people, I'm just Gary. And uh, not that that's much. But, but I go and, and I meet people, and, and George and I were with some new friends. They were believers, and actually they were on staff at a church, and they were sharing their story. And in sharing their story, they talked about, to this new group of friends, how they lost their 29-year-old son four years ago. And as I listened to them share that story, as we sat there, you could still feel the pain. The pain is evident, isn't it? Four years into it, I'm sure it never goes away. But more striking was their confidence in the great I am. They had a joy about them that can only be explained by their relationship to Jesus. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, Listen to what he says. Now think about it. This is a deep, profound quote. It's going to be on the screen, but just listen to these words. For the Christian, joy is central and sorrow is peripheral. That's because life's fundamental questions are answered and only the peripheral ones are not. But for the one who does not know Christ, sorrow is central and joy is peripheral because peripheral questions may be answered, but the fundamental ones are not. I mean, that is... That's just an amazing statement. But I found it again and again to be so true. As I've walked with people through the journey of life and, they, and they're moving through it and all the, all the things they've accumulated, even thinking back to my friend Chuck, he, he had a getaway place and we would go there. It was, a, it was a lake home in Wisconsin. They had this huge room, Corvette in it, all these really cool things. And I looked at all the trophies he had won over the years and, and was awarded. And, and they were lying on the ground collecting dust. In fact, several of them were in the outhouse. And it's not that they weren't wonderful gifts to receive when he received them, but it reminded me of Paul, Paul's words when he said, I count it all refuse for the unsurpassing joy of knowing Jesus. Amen. So with that context, I want to speak very briefly but very directly to what I feel would be very helpful for all of us this morning. In John 8, Jesus says these words, the core of what we want to talk about today. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Amen. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. So in light of that and in light of the simplicity of Jesus' words, I, I want to give you a very simple, straightforward outline that I hope you can live with in many, many days and years to come. Notice, first of all, Jesus would call us and say, we're to walk in light. Throughout the gospel, he draws a sharp distinction. This is something that's unique about John. John is a very black and white individual. Some of us like nuance. We like shades of gray. I'm one of those. But, but I also love and respect people like John that see the world in much more stark terms. I think there's a place for that. Some of you think that way. God bless you. Others of you think, and, you know, there's always another option. And God has somehow created us and put us all together on this planet, and we can learn from one another. But John is one of those that John doesn't mince words. It's black or white. It's either light or darkness. 
according to John, you either walk in the light, you walk in darkness, there is no middle ground, there is no wiggle room. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Uh, the very first church I served was a small church in San Diego, and uh, I had people from Oklahoma and Arkansas, California, were all a part of this congregation. And I remember one day a, a little older lady came up to me and said, Pastor Gary, there are two sides to every issue, like there are two sides to a sheet of flypaper, but it makes a big difference to the fly which side it's on. I thought there's pretty good wisdom there. Apparently, I never forgot it. So which side of the flypaper are you on this morning? Are you walking in the light? Or darkness? What does it mean to walk in light? Well, many things could be said, but let, let me just hit a few. First of all, we walk in light in our demeanor. That is, the way we conduct ourselves. Somebody that walks in the life, light understands that we need to live without unhealthy secrets. I, I love that we have Celebrate Recovery here. It's a powerful ministry to people that are, have just been honest about areas where they need some of God's help. And, and one of the first lessons you're going to learn is, is not to have unhealthy secrets because secrets, things we keep in the dark, are quite the opposite of everything that Jesus wants to bring into the light. So people who walk in the light, what you see is what you get. No hypocrisy, no hidden agendas. They are who they are. Those who walk in the light are easy to be around because they conduct themselves with an approachability. Have you noticed that? People that, that really feel good about themselves, they're often the most approachable people. People that are kind of standoffish and aloof, I've discovered a lot of times it's not driven by a sense of superiority, but quite the opposite, a sense of insecurity. Uh, I've studied communication my whole life. In fact, it was one of my majors. And, and one of the many things you learn in communication is how facial expressions obviously are very powerful in, in communication. And sometimes they talk about uh, communication facially as either an open or a closed expression or face. So when you think about a person with an open facial expression, they look relaxed, they smile easily. Everything about them appears to be welcoming. Think Pete Carroll. People with closed facial expressions shout, stay away with the look that's on their face without uttering a single word. Think Bill Belichick. <laughs> Which coach do you want to play for? <laughs> Both great coaches. Forgive me, Bill. Sorry about the Super Bowl. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you know, George Orwell, who wrote the book 1984 and Animal Farm and some other things, he, um, he wrote in his diary, the last entry before his death a few months later in his diary, he said this, by age 50, everyone has the face they deserve. Now, take it with a grain of salt. But it is a rather sobering thought. I mean, when's the last time you looked in the mirror? And what expression did you see? Was it an open face? Was it approachability? Was it invitational? Or was it... Secondly, we're to walk in truth. This is a tough one for many people today. To walk in truth means being truthful, but it also assumes a belief in objective truth. You know, in the Bible, in the book of Jude, there's this fascinating passage in Jude 3. That's a short book, one chapter, verse 3, where we're urged to contend for the faith, the faith. 
the faith that was entrusted once for all to the saints. Unfortunately, today, a belief in objective truth is up for grabs. Instead, we have political correctness, right? What Francis Schaeffer called, from a theological standpoint, sociological law. Sociological law is this. Whoever is the majority or whoever is in power decides what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. Change the Supreme Court, change the numbers by one, and what was legal one day can be illegal the next or vice versa. Sociological law, a lack of objective truth, merely based on who is holding a political position at a given time. And then there are those I've met, and I've met them. I remember the first time I met one, I was a police chaplain for a season in Los Angeles, and, and, and I was riding with this young officer. And I remember the first time I heard this expression as I was kind of beginning to slowly talk about Jesus and share. He said, that may be true for you. That may be truth for you but not for me. As if there's a subjective dynamic to this idea that we call truth. But truth is more than a matter of opinion. As Bible-based followers of Jesus, we need to understand that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. When you look at this first, and Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you walk in the light, it will lead to life. He's talking about the faith, an unchanging body of beliefs. And this is where the challenge comes for so many people. And listen, I wrestle with this. And I'll speak very frankly to you this morning. I have seen more unsettling things in Christian believers today than I have almost in my whole lifetime. More and more people looking at things that we know to be core values of Scripture and saying, well, I don't know that I believe that anymore. And I understand the pressure against that. But I also understand our need to stand up and resist that, which leads to the third element of walking in the light, and that is to walk in integrity. To walk in integrity refers to consistency across the spectrum of your life, inside and out. To be a person of integrity is to be a whole person. You've heard the saying, perhaps, what is seen is your reputation, what is unseen is your character. Yeah, we often pay a lot less attention to our inner life than our exterior life, even though the Bible handles this issue totally differently. I was interested the other day, I, I like to read a lot, and I was reading a magazine article that was written, uh, or was quoting Warren Buffett, the great investor and philanthropist, who's given so many millions of dollars and is this amazing uh, mind. And he was asked the question, when you hire people, what are the top three qualities you look for? Number one was integrity. Integrity, that idea of a person that you can trust, a person you can believe in, a person that has a sense of character. Years ago, I had the privilege of studying under a brilliant writer, and, and uh, he's written a lot on this subject of character, the, the private life that we live. And uh, he calls it, he, he's, he's a seafaring type person, he calls it life below the waterline. I love that expression, life below the waterline. That is, what is the unseen, what, the ballast? What is it about your life, the gravitas, whatever you want to call it? What is it that makes you a rock-solid person? David McCullough, the historian, wrote a book called The Great Bridge, and in it he's talking about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, and he, he quotes the chief engineer who wrote these words in, eight, in 1872. Now think about that and think about life below the waterline, the unseen, how important it is. 
This person was being criticized, so he writes this. To such of the general public as might imagine that no work has been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on the foundation during the past winter under the water is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the water line. I can bear that out. Coming back to Redmond, just after being gone four months, I now see buildings where there were no buildings four months ago. But I remember for the last year and a half driving and seeing them digging deeper and deeper and laying incredible foundations. You know, the foundation tells you whether they're building a skyscraper or a chicken coop. The same thing is true of your life, by the way. Show me your foundation and I can tell you what you're building whether it's a skyscraper or a chicken coop. That's exactly what Paul was writing about in Romans 12, too, when he says, do not be conformed any longer by the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this is interesting because in the, in the original language, what he's getting at is the change that Jesus brings starts on the inside and works its way out, not the other way around. It's not us trying to paper over who we are and, and put on a happy face. It's letting the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, shine through us. Which brings us to the second idea, the second calling. Not only to walk in light, we're to live as light. Some of you are old enough, which doesn't mean very old, by the way, to remember the chorus, In my life, Lord, be glorified. How many of you remember that chorus? All right, a lot of you. We sang that, in my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified, be glorified. And on and on it goes. But you know what the word glorify means? It means to accurately reflect. So we're singing, in my life, Lord, let Jesus be accurately reflected. Amen. I hope when you sing the worship songs as we sang this morning, I hope you're reading the lyrics, not just singing the lyrics. Because we're making commitments and vows. We're making profound theological statements about what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about ourselves and about our need for his grace, the reality of our fallenness, and the beauty of Jesus coming to set us free to redeem us. But when we talk about letting Jesus shine through us in our word and deeds, what we're really doing is giving a serious ask where we're saying, Jesus, we want to represent you. And if you break that little word apart, it simply means to represent. So every time we represent Jesus, we are representing him. We're representing him for good or for ill. Do people look at us and say, I see Jesus in them? Or do they look at us and say, I reject that Jesus? It used to bug me when people said, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. Then one day it dawned on me that we are. <laughs> see, something about these I am metaphors that Jesus uses, by the way, there are seven of them these striking statements, what strikes me about them is the simplicity. That's something that I had to stand back and think about for a time as I prepared. Because Jesus says things like this, things that are obvious to every one of us. I am the bread. We know what bread is. I am the door. We know what a door is. I am a shepherd. We know what that is. Today he says, I am the light. There's not much I can tell you about light that you don't already know. Light purifies Light disinfects. Light makes things grow. Light enables us to see. These were obvious things. Remember, John's a fisherman. He's profound in his simplicity. He's black and white, but he's very clear. 
But here's the rub according to the scripture. And John reminds us of this. This is the verdict, he says in John 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. When's the last time you heard somebody call anything evil? Everyone who does evil hates the light. You think that's true? And will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. In preparation for today, I was reading a book by the late Chuck Colson, who I greatly admire and got to know a little bit over the years. And he's the founder of a ministry called Prison Fellowship. Some of you may remember, but for those of you who don't, he was uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Having spent time with him, I'll tell you, he's brilliant. Truly brilliant. And, and, and he was special counsel to President Nixon. The Watergate affair broke out. He ended up going to prison. But before he entered those prison bars, he had a profound encounter with a believer, a very shy believer, by the way, named Tom Phillips, who shared very uncomfortably how Jesus had transformed his life. And as Chuck, this guy who was considered a hatchet man, left that place, he stopped in the driveway, he paused, he prayed, tears filled his eyes, he gave his life to Jesus, and God turned his life around. I remember one year later, I was sitting on the stage behind Chuck Colson and Eldridge Cleaver. Can you imagine that? And I'm sitting on this stage, and everybody wondered, would Chuck be the real deal? And a lot of people criticized his conversion to Christ, but he was the real deal. His life transformed, and from then on, he became a powerful apologist for the Christian faith. He tells of visiting one time the California Rehabilitation Center in Orange County. He says, I was speaking to hundreds of inmates and decided that five minutes into the conversation to ask them a question. So I want to read this to you in his own words. He says, okay, to all these prisoners. He says, now, you fellows are in here. You're the experts. Why is it that our nation is filling with so many prisons? He said, dozens of guys were out there. They started shouting, sin. The word became a ringing chorus, sin, he continues. I was stunned. I can't imagine any other audience where if I asked that question, I would get that answer. These men have lived it, though, and they know the truth. Striking, isn't it? The ability to acknowledge who we really are and what we need. And that brings us to the third calling I want to share today. We're to spread the light. Not only do we walk in it and live it, but we need to spread it. I mentioned the last few months have given me added times to reflect on life and ministry and what the biggest challenges are facing the church today. And, and I have to say, and this is one I've wrestled with for many decades and tried to live it out over the years in my ministry, and that is simply this. It's the question that is at the root, but it often goes either overlooked or unanswered. And I believe it's in your notes, but it'll be on the screen. How can we grow spiritually mature of Jesus followers who maintain a deep-seated love and concern for the welfare of those outside the family of faith? And I'm talking about welfare in the social sense. I'm talking about welfare in, in all the ways that we can reach out to a broken and hurting community with the love of Jesus through caring projects, through all the wonderful things we do here at Overlake. But there is a tension here. And the tension is this. Most churches, it seems to me, Bible-centered churches are either good at raising up spiritually knowledgeable disciples or they're good at raising up people that have abilities to appeal to people that wouldn't normally find the church interesting. This isn't a new problem. 
I'm talking about effective evangelism or spiritual outreach or whatever you want to call it. And I do believe that to be effective, we need to reach people in culturally relevant ways and update methods that we use without compromising the message, which that is the challenge. But see, it's not enough to raise up biblically literate disciples who only want to hang out with people just like them. Nor is it good enough, frankly, to only have a social concern and to meet the needs of the world, as important and beautiful as that is in representing Jesus. I had to be reminded again as I thought about this that the core of it still remains that we are called to raise up people who know who Jesus is and why he came. Now, I'm not pointing a finger when I say this, by the way, or as the saying goes, when a preacher points a finger, three are pointing back at him. And I would be the first to tell you, it's a very difficult thing, having walked and served for so many years, to tell you to keep passionate about people that don't yet know Jesus. In Revelation 2 and 3, this same John, by the way, who wrote the book of Revelation, so he obviously, his writing skills got quite good. John was exiled to this island. Now he's an old man, and he writes a message from Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor, one of them being the church at Ephesus. And normally he has positive things to say, but he issues a warning. And he does so with the church of Ephesus. He has good things to say, but then he issues a stern rebuke. Now listen to the rebuke, Overlake. Yet I hold this against you. Well, not necessarily Overlake, but I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. What was the first love? Now, the reality is the first love was this. The first love was when these people heard the message of love and grace. By the way, it's the church Paul served the longest. It was a great missionary church. It sent people out. It was a great church to teach about what the church should be like. It was evangelistic. People love to share their faith with others. Like Tom Phillips that led Jesus, that led uh, uh, Chuck Colson to Jesus, he stumbled and bumbled and was uncomfortable, but he took the risk and he did it. And Chuck Colson came to faith, someone you would never believe would come to faith, because it's not our transforming power, it's the power of God to transform. Last week, we lost a great Christian statesman, did we not? By the name of Billy Graham. Many of you, like me, had the chance of hearing him several times. First time I heard him and saw him, age 12, and never forgot it, a year or decade after decade, I had the privilege of hearing him. Spoke to millions of people in over 200 countries. Billy walked in the light. Anyone that knew him would tell you that was true. A man of integrity, not a perfect man, but a man after God's own heart. But I love history, and as I was reflecting on Billy's story and looking at his life, I thought of an evangelist. Being a kid from Chicago, D.L. Moody means a lot to us. D.L. Moody was a guy, unsophisticated, lacked a formal education. In fact, everyone was amazed that massive crowds would go out to hear this man who, who just lacked some of those skills but had a power of oratory, but more than that was anointed by God. Well, D.L. Moody would preach to massive crowds, and, and believe it or not, two evangelists were talking one time, and they became critical of his, one of them became critical of Moody's methods. Now, you know what they say about pastors. They say pastors are a lot like manure. That, that they're fine if you spread them out, but when you put them in a pile, they stink. <laughs> and, and I have to say over the years, I have found that on occasion to be true. Well, D.L. Moody, this great evangelist, I'm sure these were two 
good men and godly evangelists, but one of them, as is prone in our human nature, became critical of Moody and, and, and the message Moody was delivering, which had to do with heaven and hell. As one of his friends criticized Moody, the other one said, and I love his wise reply, in Moody's defense he said this, in my opinion, Mr. Moody is the only one qualified to preach on hell because he always does so with tears in his eyes. We don't hear about hell much, do we? And when we think about hell, we think of the judgment, you're going to hell, but that's, I love the story because when Moody preached on hell, he did it with tears in his eyes. And it convicts me every time I think about that story because at the white-hot center of the Christian faith, when Jesus says, I am the light and I've come to give light, he's saying there's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. The brilliant thinker and writer John Stott says this, Christianity offers life, eternal life, life to the full, but it makes it plain that the road to life is death. We're all mortal, friends. That's why this message is so important. When Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's telling us there's more beyond. He's saying this isn't the end. He's saying I came to give everlasting life. And John understood that. The other disciples came to deeply understand that. It's why John's gospel is the most evangelistic in all the Bible and the most widely known and quoted and memorized verse in all the Bible. You know it by heart. John 3.16 Listen to the words again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Spreading the light isn't about converting people. Only God can do that. But it's about giving them a chance to respond to the gospel. Amen. So I want you to bow your heads with me. And I want to lead us in a prayer in just a moment. Before I do that, though, as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not made that decision, if you are not sure if you've not acknowledged your need, if you've not been like those inmates in prison that said sin is the problem in the world, if you've never come to that realization till today perhaps, then if today you've come to it, I want you just to slip up your hand and say, today, I, I understand. I understand my need for this Jesus. I understand why he's the light of the world. I'm just going to scan the audience one time. Lift up your hand if that's your prayer today. If you need that transformation from death to life, just raise your hand up so I can see it. Thank you. Today you acknowledge your need for Jesus, the light of the world. You've been waffling, you've been walking, you say in the light, but you've really been in darkness. But today you understand why Jesus came to be the light of the world. One more moment, anyone? Father God, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of the grace that's available to us through Jesus. And Father, I would pray that every one of us in this room this morning that knows Jesus would be prompted and reminded in our heart of the great message of hope and eternal life and salvation we have. Oh, we can do great things in this life, and we should for your kingdom's sake. But in the end, we know that Jesus is a great Savior. That's why he came and died, was buried, and rose from the dead, that we would have life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you.